Welcome to a discussion on responsible research and publication in artificial intelligence. This is part of an ongoing series of seminars associated with the new Institute for Ethics in AI at the University of Oxford, a series which began over a year ago in that wonderful world before COVID. If you're interested in finding links to other related events, both past and forthcoming, together with recordings and podcasts categorized by topic, then go to the Oxford Philosophy Faculty homepage and click on the Ethics in AI link. I'm Peter Millikan, Gilbert Ryle Fellow and Professor of Philosophy at Hartford College, Oxford, and Head of Education and Outreach at the New Institute. AI and related technologies are having an increasing impact on the lives of individuals, as well as society as a whole. Alongside many current and potential future benefits, there's been an expanding catalogue of actual and potential harm arising from deployed systems and raising questions about fairness and equality, privacy, exploitation of workers, environmental impact, and much more. In addition, there have been increasing numbers of research publications that have caused an outcry over ethical concerns and possible negative impacts on society. In response, many are now asking whether the technical AI research community itself needs to do more to ensure ethical research conduct and to ensure beneficial outcomes from deployed systems. But how should individual researchers and the research community more broadly respond to the existing and potential impacts from AI research and AI technology? How should we balance academic freedom against the impact of research on society? And where should we draw the line between openness and caution in publication? One key question here is whether technical researchers are themselves well-placed to grapple with such issues, or who else needs to be involved? What can we learn from other fields to help us navigate forward in this new area that promises to have such high stakes for our collective future. I'm delighted to be joined by three researchers who will be discussing these issues, drawing on examples such as conference impact statements, release strategies for large language models, and responsible research innovation in practice. In order of speaking, they are Rosie Campbell, who leads the Safety Critical AI Programme at the Partnership on AI. Carolyn Ashurst, who is a Senior Research Scholar at the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford and Research Affiliate with the Centre for the Governance of AI. And Helena Webb, who is a Senior Researcher in the Department of Computer Science at Oxford. Welcome to all of you and thank you very much for joining me. Each of our speakers will give a short talk and the event as a whole will last for around an hour and a quarter. So we'll have plenty of time for discussion and you're very welcome to offer your own questions to the speakers. Feel free to do this at any time by typing them into the comments box on YouTube. I'll be noting these as we go and posing them to the speakers at various points. So the sooner you get your questions in, the more opportunities there will be for having them addressed. First up of our speakers, is Rosie Campbell. As I mentioned, Rosie leads the Safety Critical AI Programme at the Partnership on AI. 
She's currently focused on responsible publication and deployment practices for increasingly advanced AI, and recently co-organized a major international workshop on navigating the broader impacts of AI research. Previously, Rosie was Assistant Director of the Center for Human Compatible AI, a technical AI safety research group at Berkeley, working towards provably beneficial AI. Before that, Rosie worked as a, as a research engineer at BBC R&D, a multidisciplinary research lab based in the UK. There, she worked on emerging technologies for media and broadcasting, including an award-winning project exploring the use of AI in media production. Rosie holds degrees in computer science and physics, and also has academic experience in philosophy and machine learning. She co-founded a futurist community group in the UK to explore the social implications of emerging tech and was recently named one of a hundred brilliant women to follow in AI ethics. Welcome Rosie and over to you. Thank you so much Peter. Um, I hope you can all see my screen okay. It's great to be here. Um, I'm going to be talking today about considerations for responsible publication norms. Um, as Peter mentioned I lead the Partnership on AI's um, safety critical AI program, um, and this work is one stream that we're doing under that. In case you're not aware of the Partnership on AI, it's a multi-stakeholder non-profit um, made up of a variety of institutions, including um, non-profit organizations, industry companies, and academic institutions. And so a lot of the work we do involves um, convening and talking with partners from all of these different areas and trying to understand um, what we need to do as a community to move towards more responsible AI. The goal of this talk is to lay out some of the key questions and considerations we've been exploring as part of this work. Um, and I'm also going to suggest some uh, tentative lessons that we might be able to learn from other high stakes fields. And I'd also like to try to set the scene for further discussion on this, including possible interventions, which I'm sure Carolyn and Helena will also um, be able to cover in their talks. So the initial premise is that AI research can be both high stakes and dual use. And by high stakes, I mean that um, the outcomes can either be really, really great, uh, but they could also be potentially very bad if we uh, get things wrong or act in uh, an irresponsible way. And it's dual use in the sense that AI can be applied to many socially beneficial purposes, but it also could be maliciously used or um, otherwise, otherwise uh, applied in ways that are more harmful to society. And unfortunately, often a default mode of tech companies, um, at least in the past, has been to move fast and break things. And that's not always the best way to deal with technology that is high stakes and also dual use. So my focus has been um, thinking about the question of how can we conduct AI research responsibly to maximize the benefits and minimize the risks? And in particular, what research practices and publication norms do we need to do that effectively? And I want to start by talking about a particular example of this um, that happened in early 2019. So OpenAI, which is a, a company that is developing um, advanced AI models, uh, created a language model called GPT-2. And the way that this works is you give it a sentence and it will write an essay in the style of that sentence. So if you give it something that sounds like the first line of a president's speech, it will write an essay that sounds like a president's speech. If you give it something that sounds like a five-year-old's homework assignment, it will write something that sounds like a five-year-old's homework assignment. 
And it's pretty convincing. Um, at least the initial model, you could generally tell that it wasn't written by a human, but it was, it was not bad. It was pretty convincing. Um, and basically, when they developed this, they were worried that this technology could be used for all sorts of problematic purposes. So as some basic examples, um, potentially it could be used by spammers, uh, it could be used for very targeted phishing, it could be used to generate fake news, um, it might obviously help people cheat in their um, coursework or homework assignments. So OpenAI were a bit worried about um, releasing this technology out into the world um, so that it could be used in, in all these different ways. So what they did was to experiment with a slightly unusual release model, which was to release a smaller version of the, um, of the technology first. So rather than releasing the full, fully trained, um, very large language model, they released a smaller version of it that was less capable. Um, and so what that meant is that you could, you could feed it um, a sentence and it would give you something back, but it would be like not overwhelmingly convincing that it was written by a human. And the plan was to release things in uh, increasingly large steps so that once they could see how people were actually using the model and make any mitigations that needed to be put in place to combat uh, malicious use, uh, they could increasingly release the more capable versions. And this caused quite a few different reactions in the AI community. Some people were very impressed with this. So a tweet here says, Going so far as to think ahead to malicious uses and check in with stakeholders sets a new bar for ethics and AI. Well played, OpenAI. Uh, so some people thought this was a, a necessary step towards um, thinking about releasing AI research in a responsible way. Whereas others um, felt very differently. Uh, an example here says, what you, what you are doing is the opposite of open. It is unfortunate that you hype up and propagate fear and thwart reproducibility and scientific endeavor. And so this represents um, what became a pretty um, intense conversation in the AI community, uh, which has been going on for the last couple of years. And I think raises some really interesting questions and important tensions that we are facing as a community as we realize the impact our technology is having and could continue to have on the world. And I wanna cover a few particular questions that have arisen from this conversation. One is how do we balance openness with caution? On one hand, it's um, very important for science to be as open as possible. Um, a lot of the advances we all enjoy in our lives today are due to the scientific norms of open inquiry um, and uh, all the benefits that that has brought. Um, it's also very important for reproducibility to be able to release uh, research as openly as possible so that other um, scientists can reproduce the work and uh, confirm the findings um, and build on them. And then of course, there's the opportunity cost of potentially not releasing research um, in the sense of missing out on, on beneficial applications of that technology, which is also a very real cost that we need to take into consideration. However, on the other side of things, um, we may want to take a more cautious approach for a few reasons. Um, one example I've heard for, to illustrate this is if you knew how to make a nuclear bomb from kitchen supplies, um, most people would probably agree it's not a good idea to post that information on the internet where anyone can see it, um, just because someone is going to do that and it's going to result in devastating consequences. So most people agree that there is a line to draw somewhere, but there's a lot of discussion about where we draw that line. And an example that um, occurred in the life science community um, a few years ago was um, some researchers discovered how to synthesize the horsepox virus. And they were going to publish the um, steps that they took to do that. 
but this resulted in a big um, backlash because people were worried that it could cause people to essentially bring back the smallpox disease, which we've worked as a species so hard to eliminate. So there was a big conversation in the life sciences community about whether that kind of information should be distributed or not. And I think we're now starting to see similar conversations take place in AI. Another question is whose responsibility is it to anticipate and mitigate these risks? Um, on one hand, researchers are experts in their own work, but they may not be able to anticipate second and third order consequences that rely on knowledge, uh, complicated knowledge about economics, politics, history, all sorts of things. Um, maybe this is a job of teams, research teams. Uh, maybe it should be part of the peer review process. Is there a role for government to play or society at large? And there's this trade-off between individual versus collective responsibility. To what extent should these be things individuals are supposed to be worried about versus um, infrastructure that we put in place uh, to support the community at large? And I think Carolyn is going to talk a little bit about, more about this question in her talk. And then finally, another question I've been asking myself is how do we effectively equip ourselves to navigate responsible publication? What resources do we need as a community and what infrastructure needs to exist? Uh, potentially, we need to create frameworks for um, thinking about the risks of our, uh, of our work, uh, taxonomies to categorize different types of AI research to help us understand um, how risky it might be, um, different services to help researchers anticipate um, the potential impacts of their work, guidelines, institutions, all of these sorts of things are things that we're exploring with our partner community that we might need to um, develop. Okay, so now I'm just going to touch on a few things I've learned throughout this work. And the first is um, to try and disambiguate the different terms that often get used in this conversation. So firstly, people talk about um, research integrity, which really refers to the kinds of responsibility a, a scientist or a researcher has in order to make sure that their findings are um, legitimate and as close to truth as possible. So things like avoiding p-hacking, um, not falsifying data, those sorts of things. Then we have research ethics, which is primarily, um, at least tr traditionally, it's been primarily focused on the welfare of human participants and things like how you have gathered your data, have you done that in a responsible way? And then we have the issue of downstream consequences. So this has been more of what I've been focused on, which is once research has been conducted and it's been released into the world, what are the downstream effects of that research, whether that's something like um, technological unemployment or um, deep fakes and misinformation, what are the effects of that on society? And then there's another term that has been used more frequently, um, which is the idea of broader impact. So not just the um, potential negative consequences, but the impacts at large from, from the work. And I just wanted to disambiguate these because I think we sometimes use the term broader impacts, for example, to cover both the downstream consequences and the research ethics aspects of it. Um, and I think it can be useful to try and untangle these a little bit um, to, to know what we're focusing on. And as I said, my, my work has primarily focused on downstream consequences, but there are certainly um, ways that the different areas here overlap. So for example, um, the, uh, the environmental effect of how much computation you need to train a model uh, might be part of research ethics, but that also has relevance to the downstream consequences if that um, model is then going to be used in um, deployed at large and lots of people are going to be, um, it, you know, that environmental effect is magnified. 
Another consideration is the fact that a lot of AI research happens beyond academia and happens within industry. Um, and not only that, but a lot of AI research um, goes directly to places like archive or blog posts and bypasses the peer review system completely. So we're dealing with a slightly unusual um, field here in that we can't just think only about the academic research process. We have to think um, more broadly about the community at large. And in addition, the line between research and product is quite blurry. If you think of something like GPT-2, like I mentioned earlier in the talk, um, that was positioned as a research endeavor, but it all is also now being turned into products. And so I think we're seeing in AI um, a much sort of tighter turnaround between the research that's done and the products that are deployed based on that research. So um, it's quite difficult to untangle those two things. There's a wide spectrum of views in the community. So um, as I mentioned, there's this tension between openness and caution, and some people very much see themselves as on the openness side of things, very pro-openness no matter what the costs. Um, and other people see themselves as very much on the caution side of things, so trying to um, really be sure that you've mitigated any risks and that you can be pretty confident that your research is safe before it's deployed. And as you can imagine, most people fall somewhere along that spectrum. It's currently not that common for AI researchers to discuss the risks of their work, um, and there are a couple of reasons for this. Some want to do that, um, and they think it is within their remit, but they just don't feel equipped. Um, they don't understand how to um, anticipate these second or third order effects. Uh, whereas some researchers see their role as pushing the boundaries of um, knowledge and science and um, feel like it's not within their remit to consider the impacts of their work and it's outside of their uh, responsibility. So we have uh, different views in the community on that. I've also noticed a few different clusters of values in the community. We have people who are primarily focused on um, the science. So I've called them the science first people in terms of pushing the boundaries of knowledge and not worrying too much about the impacts on society. Um, we then have people who are primarily focused on social justice issues and are very much um, interested in examining the impacts that we see today on our systems that are um, uh, having effects on marginalized communities. And then we have people who are more focused on the long-term future and the way that these technologies um, may continue to develop. Um, so they might be more worried more about things like automation or super intelligence. Um, and so depending on which um, cluster you fall into, people tend to have very different views on this issue. Um, and I have identified here a few ways that um, these groups tend to have things in common, um, but I do think it's helpful to um, understand when you're talking to someone about this where they're coming from. Um, there are also, there's also two major target audiences for this work. One are uh, practitioners. So these are the people who are the researchers and engineers actually building the systems and doing the research. Um, and they hold a lot of market power because um, AI researchers are in high demand. Um, and so they can affect widespread culture changes. They can put pressure on their employers. They can change the culture within their research labs um, from a grassroots level. And then you have um, what I'm calling gatekeepers, who are the grant, keep, grant makers and publishers, such as um, journal editors and conference chairs, um, who hold a lot more direct power. So they can mandate a policy change, um, like requiring all authors to include a broader impact statement with their work, uh, which has wide sweeping effects across the community in a very quick way. Uh, the problem is that if you um, focus too much on the top-down policy changes, you can end up with a backlash from the practitioner group um, who, who may not be on board with those changes. But if you don't, uh, if you focus too much on the grassroots 
um, changes, then things can happen very slowly. So I see it as needing to, um, to, to, to sort of work with both of these groups uh, in tandem to try and make progress. And then finally, um, there are a few coordination challenges that we are seeing on this issue. So, um, for example, if, uh, if a research lab wants to um, not fully release a certain piece of work because there are some ethical or broader impacts considerations um, there, uh, often that isn't within policy of uh, conferences. Conferences often have like open data, open access policies, and um, both parties here are trying to act in a responsible way, but because there aren't standardized norms in the field, uh, they end up kind of clashing. And we also have a problem where um, authors who um, may want to delay their the publication of their work uh, to try and do some risk mitigation before it's released um, may miss out on getting the credit for that discovery. A lot of, uh, if you're in academia, you're probably aware of the publish or perish um, uh, mindset. And I think a lot of people feel pressured to publish things as soon as possible so that they can get that credit and it's good for their career. And so anything that talks about restricting publication or delaying publication um, can be a problem there. So that's another coordination challenge we need to think about. And so then just to briefly touch on some things we can learn from other fields. In the life sciences, um, it's very, uh, it's, it's the norm to include in any um, research on, for example, new drugs, the side effects that those drugs might have. It would be very strange to publish um, uh, results of clinical trials without talking about the potential downsides of a particular drug. And so that's an analogy to what we're trying to advocate for here in the world of AI. In the life sciences, there is also something called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, which was established in the wake of the anthrax attacks. Um, and the, this board uh, can advise um, on different publication decisions um, and provide some level of expertise and oversight to those sorts of decisions. And again, that's something that we could think about uh, for AI. And then finally, in the life sciences, they have uh, what's uh, sometimes referred to as a culture of responsibility. And often this is mostly about how you handle yourself around dangerous and hazardous substances. Um, but it also applies more broadly to thinking about the impacts of, um, of bio research. And so again, that's something that we could think about adopting. And I put a link here to a case study that we have published on um, the H5N1 virus uh, and, and what we can learn from that incident. In cybersecurity, there is a norm of coordinated vulnerability disclosure. And what that means is that if someone discovers a bug in a software system, um, rather than making that bug um, public immediately, they will often notify the vendor of that bug. So if you find a bug in Google Chrome, you would notify Google before making that public so that then Google have a, a fixed amount of time to be able to fix that bug before, um, before it's um, made known to the public. Um, and so what that does is allow a coordinated effort to fix um, uh, vulnerabilities before they can be exploited by malicious actors. Um, and again, that's something we might want to think about um, how that might work in the world of AI. Um, they also, cybersecurity also has some interesting approaches to accreditation. Um, so trying to get around this issue of how do you delay um, publication while, while also giving people credit. There are some interesting things we can learn there. And um, again, I put a link to a case study that we've written on this topic. Um, and then finally, uh, nuclear research also has some interesting analogies. Again, it is a dual use and a high stakes field, just like AI. Um, but it also gives us an example of how having too much secrecy can actually lead to problems. So uh, there are there's some arguments that some of the um, the, the result of uh, 
the devastation in Chernobyl could have been avoided if there was much more of a culture of openness and learning from mistakes um, uh, in, the, in the nuclear field. So that's something we also want to be very mindful of within AI. Um, we have a bunch of possible interventions we're exploring, which I'm not going to go into detail on now uh, because I'm running out of time. And also I know uh, Carolyn and potentially Helena are also going to cover some of these. Uh, but just to run through them quickly, we're thinking about things like including broader impact statements um, in uh, papers, um, trying to establish institutional review processes to think ahead about the potential impacts of research before it's conducted, um, looking at ways we could consider partial or restricted publication, um, an advisory, an expert advisory board along the lines of the NSABB that I mentioned, and also developing informational resources that can assist researchers who are having trouble um, navigating the potential impacts of their work. And then just to finish off, I wanted to share some upcoming work we have in the pipeline, which is going to be a white paper for with recommendations and considerations for individual researchers, research institutions and teams, and also conferences and journals um, for how we can navigate uh, this issue responsibly as a community. And the sort of heuristic that we are using is that the more impressive the contribution of your paper, um, the greater responsibility, the greater the responsibility you have to consider um, the potential impacts of your work. And I'm happy to talk more about that in the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rosie. That was uh, that was really interesting. I mean, a great overview of what's clearly quite a complicated landscape. Yeah. Um, can I ask you, just before we, we move on, I'd be interested to know your personal view of a kind of um, <clears throat> two different perspectives that someone might have on this. I mean, on the one hand, somebody might say, look, in general, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, the, the way to be safe is to have things out in public where everybody can see them. On the other hand, somebody might say, I mean, you mentioned things like impact statements where, mm -hmm. where researchers are consciously thinking about the risks and saying what they are. Some might say that's just a way of giving bad guys ideas. So you've yeah. got a bit of a conflict there. Do you, do you feel both of those temptations or do you go one way or the other? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think these are both really good points and this illustrates why this is a complicated topic and we need to have these conversations now. Um, so on the sunlight is the, is the best disinfectant um, uh, position. I think in general that's probably true and for most research the responsible thing to do is going to be to publish it as openly as possible, disseminate as widely as possible. Um, however, I think there are going to be cases where um, that's not necessarily the case and we need to think about um, what's sometimes called the offense-defense balance of scientific knowledge, and there's a paper on this um, that I would recommend people go and read, um, where sometimes um, releasing the knowledge is going to be more helpful to people who want to cause harm, so adversaries, than it is going to be to the people who want to help mitigate that harm. And that's going to be a judgment call, and we need to think about what heuristics we can use to try and anticipate in advance whether um, research is more, is more likely to help um, sort of uh, pro-social researchers or those who are going to misuse it. Um, so, so yeah, overall, I think sunlight asbestos disinfectant is generally true, but there are going to be exceptions to that that we want to be mindful of. Um, and then the other question you had around um, broader impact statements and will it just give bad guys ideas? Um, yeah, so I think this is um, a really interesting problem to have because if we are trying to encourage researchers to write 
more about the potential ways that their research could be used to cause harm. You end up in a situation where someone who does want to misuse that research can just go and read all the latest AI papers and see a nice menu of ways that they can use that to uh, cause trouble. So I think this is, again, another coordination challenge. Maybe there's a way where we ask researchers to write a broader impact statement, but we don't necessarily publish it. Um, or maybe there are um, certain things that it makes much more sense to have out in the open. Um, again, going back to this sunlight is a disinfectant um, thing. Uh, but some, some types of broader impacts could be better um, kept as like redacted or something like that. Um, so I don't really have a strong view on that other than to say that I think it is a valid concern and one that I um, want to hear from people in the community and, and think about potential creative solutions to, to solve. Yeah, it, it, show, I mean, it shows how complex these problems are, isn't it? You've got both coordination, you've also got issues of whose responsibility it is to make the various judgments and so on. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rosie. Again, that's been really interesting. Um, and uh, now we move to Dr. Carolyn Ashurst. Carolyn is a senior research scholar at the Future of Humanity Institute. Oh, hello, Carolyn. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. And uh, research affiliate with the Centre for the Governance of AI, both of those in, in Oxford. Uh, her research focuses on improving the societal impacts of machine learning and related technologies including topics in AI governance, responsible machine learning, and algorithmic fairness. The technical fairness research focuses on using causal models to formalize incentives for fairness-related behaviors. On the question of responsible and research um, and publication, Carolyn recently co-authored a major guide to writing impact statements and was co-organizer with Rosie of the recent workshop on navigating the broader impacts of AI research. Previously, she worked as a data and research scientist in various roles within government and finance. And you started off with both a master's and doctoral degree in mathematics. So welcome, Carolyn, over to you. Brilliant, uh, thank you so much. And hopefully uh, you can see my screen. Do let me know if not, um, but brilliant. So thank you very much, Peter. Um, so my talk uh, is really a, a continuation of a lot of the themes that, uh, that Rosie already introduced in her excellent talk. So I'll be talking about self-governance in machine learning and using impact statements and ethical review as a, as a case study for thinking about that. So here um, I'll be concentrating on the role of the technical machine learning research community, both individual researchers, research groups, research conferences. Um, but of course, AI ethics and questions around societal impact has to be an interdisciplinary endeavor and has to involve many stakeholders, regulators, tech firms, impacted communities. So whilst I'm focusing on just one important actor, of course, this is just one piece of the puzzle. So there are lots of examples of the technical research community taking action in response to existing and potential harms around uh, AI technology. So for example, uh, technical researchers such as Joy Bualamwini shown here have done extensive work to highlight the limitations and resulting harms from AI systems. For example, exposing algorithmic bias in commercial systems. And work on these topics has spawned uh, new research disciplines concerned with the societal impacts of AI. For example, fairness, accountability, and transparency. And this year's FACT conference uh, begins tomorrow, for example. 
and mainstream conferences uh, such as NeurIPS uh, now accept technical papers related to societal aspects such as AI safety, fairness and privacy. Uh, certain data scientists and machine learning researchers have also been very active in raising awareness uh, amongst the public through books and other activities. And there are also uh, many uh, groups, workshops and teams who wish to promote the use of AI for beneficial purposes, often under the header of AI for social good or um, particular uh, areas such as climate change. Uh, but whilst there is a lot of proactive initiatives in this space like these, many are still asking whether the research community needs to do more. Uh, after all, the world is still full of problematic applications, biased models and applications that bring benefits to some whilst bringing material harms to others. And in addition, every year we see research papers that provoke an outcry over ethical concerns, for example, over problematic data sets or categorizations of people, applications that could be used against populations, uh, such as surveillance technologies, weapons research, and applications that could be used for misinformation, such as fake image generation. So in response to this, uh, the, the NeurIPS conference introduced new mechanisms this past year. So NeurIPS is the largest machine learning conference. Uh, in 2019, 13,000 people attended. Uh, in 2020, the conference was held online with around 22,000 attendees. And having a paper published at NeurIPS is, is very competitive. It's very much a top tier conference. And it has a lot of focus on, on theory, on methods, uh, more so than on developing and deploying specific systems in specific contexts. So in 2020, uh, NeurIPS introduced uh, two new mechanisms, which I'll uh, talk about uh, in, this, in this talk. So as part of peer review, uh, they introduced an ethical review process. The technical uh, reviewers could flag papers for ethical concerns and papers that received strong technical reviews yet were flagged for ethical reasons uh, were, were assessed by a pool of, of ethics reviewers. So what happened? Um, around 10,000 papers were submitted to NeurIPS, about 2,000 were accepted. Um, of these, 13 were passed to the ethics reviewers, uh, resulting in four uh, rejections on ethical grounds, um, and seven authors were asked to make changes to their papers. Um, so this affected just a very small number of, of papers in the end. Uh, on the other hand, the initiative that affected everybody uh, was the broader impact statement. So NeurIPS required that all, all authors include a broader impact section at the end of their papers, including its ethical aspects and future societal consequences, including both positive and negative outcomes. And this was actually announced before they explained the changes to the review process and the media reaction uh, was very mixed. Uh, so how did people respond? Well, on social media, uh, many came out in favour of this requirement, both from the ethics community and from the technical community, as a step in the right direction that will encourage broader dialogue. But many also criticised this initiative with concerns about whether technical authors have the right expertise and whether this is even meaningful for a lot of the work at NeurIPS. Uh, but of course, social media isn't always the best place to find out what the majority really think. So some researchers at Element AI uh, surveyed 50 researchers to find out about their attitudes and how they'd gone about the requirement. And again, uh, they found a really mixed response. 
So the survey authors stated that uh, there seems to be a general feeling that assessing broader impact is important, but some uncertainty regarding who should do it and how. And some liked that it forced researchers to reflect on the impact on their work, whereas others felt that it was too broad um, and that they didn't feel qualified. One respondent said, if I liked writing fiction, I'd be writing novels. And another described it as one more burden that falls on the shoulders of already overworked researchers. So really a, a mixed response and, and lots of concerns. Uh, we also know that the vast majority of respondents spent less than two hours on their statement and that many felt there was a, a lack of clarity and examples and guidance. So because the official guidance uh, was very brief, little more than what I sh showed on that first slide, um, a group of us at FHI and elsewhere uh, put together um, an unofficial guide that ML researchers could use. And as we learn more about what researchers find challenging, we hope that others will build on this so that we can iterate towards a, a better state of affairs. So I've given a flavour of some of the divided attitudes towards this requirement. Um, but what did researchers actually write? Uh, so researchers, including a group of us at FHI, are starting to analyse uh, the statements. Uh, but back in the autumn, Margarita Boyaskia and Tal uh, analysed the first preprints to be put on archive. Um, and they did find some encouraging trends. Uh, they found that some considered a variety of stakeholders, uh, that some were very clear about their uncertainty, and some even deliberated about the limitations of mitigation strategies. Um, and some gave uh, concrete examples of, of tasks, failure scenarios and situations of harms. Um, but they also highlighted some trends that they found concerning. Uh, for example, neglecting stakeholders, uh, e.g. assuming that benefits uh, means benefits to companies and taking uh, positive impacts to mean technical advances. They also uh, felt their examples of people outsourcing ethical responsibility and letting the research topic bound the scope of inquiry. For example, fairness papers uh, failing to acknowledge unintended negative effects um, of fairness work. Uh, they also felt that some overemphasized uh, the net impact um, and some were overconfident in their claims. So further analysis is still needed, but it's already clear that the quality of statements uh, was highly variable. So given what we know so far from the immediate reaction, um, from uh, the surveys, from the, the statements themselves, um, what is the state of play regarding self-governance in AI? Uh, so as Rosie pointed to in her talk and, and has uh, been shown to be the case for, for impact statements, uh, there's certainly a lack of uh, consensus on some of the underlying questions around whose responsibility this should be, around the trade-offs, for example, between openness and caution, between scientific freedom and responsibility to do work to benefit society, um, and on beliefs about scientific endeavour, for example, whether research should be considered uh, beneficial until proven otherwise. And even amongst those who agree on those questions, uh, there is still a lack of consensus about which concrete uh, mechanisms to adopt and best practice for implement them, implementing them. Um, so where do we go from here? So in, in our uh, recent work uh, in this uh, paper led by Karina Prunkel, uh, we outlined some of the potential benefits 
um, of impact statements, increased anticipation of risks, reflection and awareness, uh, and assisting coordination. But we also outlined some of their risks, uh, that impact statements uh, risk being low quality, uh, that such initiatives can trivialize the task of ethical reflection, uh, that they can provoke negative attitudes, um, or give a false sense of security if particular risks and harms are understated. Uh, they can also unintentionally signal that researchers alone should be the ones to judge the ethics of their work. Um, and we do risk um, a polarization of the research community along political lines and along institutional lines. And writing uh, impact statements like this is challenging. Um, the potential uh, impacts uh, of a piece of work are very complex. Uh, and in this case, there was a lack of explanation uh, and transparency. Uh, also, uh, researchers are under time pressure, uh, and perhaps most importantly, there are institutional, social, and cognitive biases and pressures that can incentivize researchers to focus on the positive impacts and, and not the negatives. So how can we address these challenges and risks? Well, where initiatives like impact statements are used, uh, we recommend focusing uh, on the following. So firstly, some uh, straightforward first steps, improving the transparency around the task uh, and process and improving the guidance available, as well as providing links to ethical and societal expertise. But on the more challenging side, we also need to think very carefully about how to improve the incentives to address uh, some of the challenges. Uh, for example, uh, using peer review and expert involvement to ensure that the standard is met, perhaps encouraging researchers to cite other impact statements to provide an incentive to write them well, uh, or prestigious prizes for well-written statements. And finally, deliberation. So in order to move towards a shared understanding and shared norms, we need to continue to create forms for deliberation, uh, providing evidence where possible, um, and to continue to discuss how to address challenges that push researchers towards understating harms like reputational and legal costs. And wherever self-governance mechanisms more broadly are used, um, we would urge people to consider these suggestions. And while there are a lot of challenges and risks, um, I, I do think that if done well, things like impact statements could be really beneficial in raising awareness and in encourage, uh, encouraging reflection about societal impacts. But we do need to think carefully uh, about how to get there. Uh, so with that, um, I'll end there. Um, and thank you uh, very much for listening. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Uh, can I ask you a couple of questions about impact statements? I mean, they, they, it sounds you know, like a quite a promising idea, but it's, it must be quite difficult. I mean, with a lot of AI research, you're dealing with stuff that's actually very theoretical. Uh, very, if you like, high level. I mean, developing fundamental te algorithmic techniques, for example, that could have zillions of possible applications all over the place. So is it realistic to expect impact statements there? 
Yeah, thank you. This is a, this is a really good question. Um, yeah, this was certainly my reaction when the announcement came out, particularly because NeurIPS is such a kind of a theoretical and methods-based conference. I, I kind of thought, what are these researchers gonna, gonna write? And um, so the first thing to note is that um, shortly after the, new, uh, the announcement, NeurIPS did clarify that if your research is very theoretical, you do have to include a statement, but you are allowed to say something along the lines of my, my research is very theoretical um, and therefore a broader impact statement does not imply uh, does not apply um, I guess for me personally I would still encourage um, theoretical researchers to, to, to use the opportunity to, to think um, about their kind of their research field more broadly um, and the impacts that it does have which which you know theoretical research um, um, is is after all contributing towards um, and in terms of your your other point you mentioned about um, having a, a, a very large range of potential applications this is this is really true for, for a lot of work even even work that's not um, really theoretical because many of these algorithms are so general purpose if you train them on a new data set they can be used for completely different tasks um, so I think this is really uh, I think this is a really challenging one um, and so um, I, I encourage uh, researchers to, to think very broadly across this, this the spectrum and uh, because that is that is useful for the discussion it is useful for, for policy makers um, but ultimately we do need experts from other fields to, to, to help think about some of these kind of these uh, how the impacts could pan out in, in very different situations and in, in, in very different applications. Yeah, I mean, I'm struck by the way that the big developments in deep learning over the last you know, decade or so have come in and suddenly impacted all over the place. <laughs> you know, suddenly it becomes possible to you know, fake pictures, writing even. Suddenly it becomes possible to play chess and go at a high level, and you wouldn't have thought of those as being similar. Um, so, I mean, a big theoretical innovation somewhere can have impact all over the place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we often refer to AI as being a general purpose technology, mm. and that's why that thinking about the ethics and the societal impact is, is, is so difficult, um, but, but also ultimately why it's so important. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. You've, uh, you've emphasised some of the techniques that we're trying to use to keep this beast under control, but it's obviously controlling it is a very, very complicated matter. So thank you very much indeed, Carolyn. Um, okay, next we're we're moving on to Helena, Helena Webb. Um, Helena is a senior researcher in the Department of Computer Science at Oxford. Uh, she's an interdisciplinary researcher and specializes in projects that bridge social science and computational analysis. She's interested in the ways that users interact with technologies in different kinds of settings and how social action both shapes and is shaped by innovation. She works on projects that seek to identify mechanisms for the improved design, responsible development, and effective regulation of technology. While at Oxford, she's worked on projects relating to, amongst others, harmful content on social media, algorithmic bias, resources in STEM education, and responsible robotics. Helena's the research lead at the newly formed Responsible Technology Institute within the Department of Computer Science here at Oxford. She also co-convenes student modules in the Department on Computers in Society and Ethics and Responsible Innovation. So welcome, Helena. Thank Over you. to you. 
Thank you very much. I, I pressed a button that I shouldn't have earlier. So I just need to check that my slides are still going to show. So can you see my slides okay there? Excellent. Thank you. Um, so thank you very much. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to join this discussion today. Um, I'm going to talk about the notion of responsibility and open up what it means in the context of AI research, specifically really about AI research in academia. And I think what I'm going to say is really going to um, touch on a lot of the things that Rosie and Carolyn have already mentioned. Um, in particular, what I want to do is draw on a well-known responsibility initiative that's gained quite a lot of traction in research industry and policy. And I want to argue that we can use this notion of responsibility to foster ethical practice all the way through the processes of AI research and innovation. Um, before I go on to that, I will just introduce myself a little bit further. So as Peter says, I'm an interdisciplinary researcher. I trained initially in the social sciences, and I've been working now in the Department of Computer Science at Oxford for six years. I'm part of a theme called human-centered computing, and we're an interdisciplinary group. And as the name suggests, we put humans at the heart of computing. So the kind of projects that we do examine the impacts that computer-based innovations have on individuals, communities, and societies societies and we often seek to identify ways in which these kind of innovations can be ethical and, and better support human flourishing so that they can aid empowerment of users that they can be trustworthy that they can be safe that they can address societal inequalities and so on a number of the projects that I'm involved in follow this initiative um, called responsible research and innovation also sometimes just referred to as responsible innovation and this initiative spans across policy, academia and industry and emerged about 20 years ago and has gained a great deal of influence over that period, in particular in the UK and in the EU, as well as elsewhere. And this initiative, RRI, began with a aim to identify and address uncertainties and risks associated with novel areas of research, such as nanotechnology and geoengineering. And now it has moved into ICT as well. And really the core idea behind responsible research and innovation is to bring together actors across society. So researchers, citizens, policymakers, businesses, third sector organizations, and so on, to work together across the whole research and innovation process. And the idea is that by doing this, we can have better outcomes of research and innovation because we're aligning these process with societal values, needs, and interests. So we will produce better results. Um, for that reason, responsible research and innovation is often characterized as doing science with and for society because it brings society and together with processes of research and innovation. Um, a longer definition on the slide here comes from René von Schomburg, who talks about RRI as a transparent, interactive process by which societal actors and innovators become mutually responsive to each other with a view on the ethical acceptability, sustainability and societal desirability of the innovation process and its marketable products in order to allow a proper embedding of scientific and technological advances in our society. So what we're really talking about here is, is a broadening out of traditional research and innovation processes to include the involvement of society very upstream. And I'll talk a little bit in a second about some frameworks for achieving this kind of work. But first, I'll just mention the ways in which this idea of responsible innovation or responsibility more generally is becoming um, quite embedded in the ways that people are talking about AI. 
So just a couple of examples on the slide here. Um, so responsibility is often talk, talked about um, in industry. So um, one example is Google, which has its own responsible innovation team, of course, not without any problems or without controversy. Um, and also the other examples from the slide here relate to UK policy. Um, so there is a great deal of drive to see responsible innovation as a factor in the pipeline of AI from research to development right the way through into industry. So, so the UK and uh, the UK government wants to make um, the UK uh, uh, a leader of AI and sees this um, being achieved by really creating um, a lot more opportunities for AI in research and then driving that through into the development process and into industry. And the way this is often talked about is combining this with approaches that apply um, responsible innovation as well to, in order to make sure that whilst being a leader um, in AI, that UK is also creating a situation in which AI achieves social good in various different ways. And this kind of interest in responsible innovation also carries over into academia and the kind of places where we might often seek funding for the work that we do. So two examples on the slide here. The first one um, comes from the EPSRC, um, which provides funding work for research in the engineering and physical sciences and funds a lot of work um, that's going on in AI. So the EPSRC recently launched um, a very large program on trusted autonomous systems, for instance. As it states on their website, the EPSRC is committed to promoting responsible innovation. So it expects those who apply for funding to carry out research um, using, uh, using its money to engage with responsible innovation in some way and to embed these approaches into their projects. Also, um, Horizon 2020, which is the other um, part on the slide here, is the biggest EU research and innovation programme ever, with nearly 80 billion euros of funding available over a period of seven years. And responsible innovation, responsible research and innovation is very heavily um, embedded into the Horizon 2020 programme as well, in particular with their science with and for society objective. So again, we have this expectation that researchers who are getting money from these sources will be engaging with the ideas of responsible innovation as well. So I think it's worth spending a bit of time to look at the kind of frameworks that are available um, for knowing how you might carry out um, these kind of responsible research um, and innovation processes. So we'll look again at these two funding bodies. So first of all, with the EPSRC, they have what's called an area framework. And so this area framework sets out the kinds of actions that researchers can do to embed responsible research and innovation into the work that they're doing. And this framework framework is composed of four parts, anticipate, reflect, engage and act. So the first thing that you do within the area framework is to anticipate. And this is something um, that's already mentioned a couple of times in this seminar. Anticipation involves thinking about the possible outcomes and impacts of the research that's being done. So it's identifying the positive and negative impacts and also the intended and unintended ones that might arise from the work that's going on. And importantly, this isn't the same as predicting. There's no need to know for sure what the outcomes might be because they can be very difficult to pin down. But it's an awareness um, of all the different potential outcomes so that you can then act on them later. The next phase is one of reflection. So it's reflecting about the process of research itself. What kind of assumptions are being carried into it? What kind of uncertainties need to be addressed? And then you move on to engage. And this is a highly important stage and it involves 
opening up the research process to a very inclusive dialogue. So typically engage involves bringing in the perspectives of different kinds of stakeholders in the research process. So this might be users, policymakers, people from different professional environments um, and so on, and genuinely listening, inviting their perspectives and listening to the kind of concerns they might have about the research process and its outcomes, what kind of interests they have and the different kind of values that they have associated with it. And then the final stage, once you've done these three, is to act. So you take what you've learned from the first three stages and then you act on them um, in certain ways. And what you're trying to do here is to positively influence the trajectory of this research process. So it might be making changes to the research planning. It might be making changes to the research team, making changes to suggested outputs and so on, based on what you've learned across the three earlier phases so that you are moving towards making something that is more likely to be um, acceptable in society, more likely to provide value, more likely to align with societal needs. So that's the EPSRC area framework. And then the EU has the 2014 Rome Declaration on Responsible Research and Innovation, which is rather broader and is based on six pillars. And these relate to open access, government governance, ethics, science communication, public engagement and gender equality. So once again, we can see here that engagement, public engagement is very important. And it's certainly something that we found very useful in the projects that we do here in Oxford. So as I mentioned, we often use this responsible research and innovation approach in the work that we do in our projects. And we find it extremely helpful to get us to think about all the different kinds of societal values related to um, different technologies and how we can understand those different kinds of values and genuinely listen to the concerns of our stakeholders and then use that in a very constructive way to influence our own research processes. So just to give a very brief example here, um, I was involved in a project called Unbias, which looked at the user experience of algorithm-driven online platforms and also issues of algorithmic bias. And when we carried out this project, we were very committed to various forms of stakeholder engagement. So we ran professional stakeholder workshops in which we brought together professionals with an interest in the kind of issues a project was exploring and encouraged them to have dialogue with us and with each other. So we brought together people from industry, from policy, special interest groups, um, education, the media, and so on. And we talked through issues of algorithmic bias, filter bubbles, um, the ways in which you know fake news processes can be driven by the mechanisms of online platforms and so on and discuss together possible ways to tackle these kind of issues and, and to really understand the different kind of issues that were at play um, in these kind of phenomena. We also spent a lot of time on public engagement as well. So going to different kinds of events and talking to members of the public about the research that we were doing and engaging with them to get their responses to it, to see how, how they understood the work that we were doing and and what kind of um, values they associated with it. And then finally, we engaged in co-creation processes as well for our material outputs. So we worked with different kinds of stakeholder to produce um, outputs that could be used um, beyond the lifespan of the study. So in the slide here, I've shown a picture of our unbiased awareness cards. And, and these are sets of cards that you can use it with to play kind of games um, to help understand issues of algorithmic bias and their impacts and to think through what fairness in algorithms might mean. And these um, card sets were co-created with groups of school children. Um, so we worked with them to design activities that would be um, engaging and also carry over the kinds of um, ideas that we wanted to communicate. 
So we find um, responsible research and innovation highly useful as an approach to embed into our work. And I can understand that um, this might seem less immediately um, useful to people who engage in far more technical um, work as the work that we do is already very sort of societal facing and so on. But I do think there are lots of ways in which we can take this idea of responsibility and, and the overall um, aims of the responsible research and innovation approach and apply it to any form of research. So to include um, this more technically focused AI work. And I'll just mention a few kind of important characteristics um, that we might think are relating to responsibility to see how it can apply to this form of more technical research. So one of them is to understand that responsibility isn't just about thinking of the impacts of research, it's also thinking of the research process as well. So it's understanding that when you're doing research, that's part of society too. So you need to think about responsibilities within it. And this goes beyond the, the traditional kind of, um, you know, following the guidance set out by your ethics committee to thinking about different issues as well. So thinking back to the Rome Declaration on responsible research and innovation. They talk about open access to science. So, so reaching different kinds of audiences and making publications available um, to different audiences, making them understandable to different audiences. Um, Rosie mentioned the carbon footprints of projects as well. And I think this is hugely important when we think about the AI research process, as we know that the AI requires a lot of computational power. So it actually contributes um, to climate change in various ways. So as a research process, you can think about how you might manage that, how you'd manage the carbon footprint of the project that you're doing. More generally, um, we've all of us learned over the last year that we don't necessarily need to travel by plane thousands of miles to go to conferences. So we can all start to think about how we might reduce the carbon footprint of our projects in that sense as well. And then also the Rome Declaration mentions gender and inclusivity. And I think this is a highly important point when we think about research processes. And I know that in industry, um, AI has often come under attack for, you know, the AI um, industry is not necessarily being particularly inclusive or balanced in terms of gender and the kind of impacts it has um, in perhaps making uh, some of the, the data sets that are used um, within industry practice less than diverse as well. And, and that kind of attitude, this neglect of diversity carrying through. And I think the same can apply in, in some senses to, to university research as well. Computer science departments are not bastions of gender diversity or inclusivity more generally. There's, there's lots of work that can be done um, in this side of things. And it's something that we can think about as a responsibility um, of researchers and research institutions in carrying out this kind of work. The next two factors I think relate to each other um, very closely. So I've put them together. So one is understanding that responsibility is not just about liability. So it's not just about finding who is to blame when something goes wrong. It's something quite different um, from that because it also involves being forward looking. It's not just looking back after something has gone wrong and saying, oh, well, you know, let's work out who to blame for it. It's more about a kind of proactive caretaking. And, and this is where this idea of anticipation um, comes in that you look forward and think about you know what are the potential implications of this process the positive ones the negative ones intended and unintended and rather than just you know you don't just simply sort of raise awareness of them uh, you know in, in the sense of kind of creating fear and so on you anticipate so that you can then take action you can take steps to try to mitigate those potentially negative consequences so by being responsible you're looking forward and you're taking care of the future um, in that sense and thinking far more broadly than just simple liability. 
And then the final point to make is that responsibility is also shared. It's shared as a process. It's distributed um, across different groups of people, across society, really. So, you know, we've spoken about the concerns that researchers have about taking all of this on. And I think it's very true to say that they shouldn't be expected um, to take on all of these kind of considerations themselves. And in fact, it's much better if they don't. It's much better if we think of responsibility as a kind of collective process, one in which we bring in these different kinds of perspectives. So understanding the perspectives of stakeholders and understanding the role that, that different groups um, and that different people play um, across these research and innovation processes. So we can understand that the responsibility is really distributed across this landscape rather than just all being placed um, into the laps of poor overworked researchers in that sense. So I think if we put these two, put all these things together, the understanding um, that responsibility is about the research process, it goes beyond liability, it's very forward looking and it's shared, it's shared with different stakeholders. We can really open up um, this notion of responsibility and we can use it to foster ethical practice all the way through the process of AI research and innovation and perhaps overcome um, some of the concerns about you know, what it means to, to ask researchers to take on um, all of these considerations and, and just do them by themselves. It's a far more kind of a collective approach and a very forward looking one as well that I think is really crucial. You know, we, we've mentioned a number of times the kind of impacts that, that AI can have um, on society. And it's really crucial that we think forwards about those impacts and don't just react to them um, retrospectively. And there are many other things I could say at this point, but I'm going to stop there um, so that we can move on to the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Helena. Uh, one question that I'd, I'd like to ask you about, I mean, you're very interested in the issues of training and education. And you were talking about researchers taking responsibility and caretaking, I mean, yes. caring about it. Some people might be rather, rather skeptical about whether training can actually make people care. And I mean, if, if a researcher's in a context where, you know, progress in their, in their job or in publication or whatever depends primarily on just getting on and producing research and getting there faster than the other guy and so forth, um, how far can training make people care and take responsibility? I think um, training is really vital and sort of early training um, so, so that people learn it sort of right from, from the start is, is really important. So, so we see, for instance, in, in department, department of computer science here, we now teach our first year undergraduates ethics and responsible innovation with the idea that they, they kind of get the, the basics of it in the first year and they carry it through um, all the way through their research careers. And, and the EPSRC, the funding body that I mentioned, um, where they fund um, centers for doctoral training, uh, which is sort of four year programs for doctoral students, um, they require those centers for doctoral training to include responsible innovation um, training as well. So, so again, you sort of have these perspectives brought in very early on um, so that you know, people uh, learn them quickly and, and just assume, assume that they're kind of part of the work that they're, they're doing, not an extra thing that's you know, terrible that they have to add to their workload, but, but just a central thing um, of the work that they're doing. Um, and I can only speak for the students that I, I've been in contact with, but they, they certainly take it on very responsibly, actually. And, and I think, you know, 
um, they can really see the need for it, the, the need for this kind of you know, ethical thinking um, about AI. But I think more broadly, uh, you know, I do take your point that it's really about sort of what Rosie was saying about a culture of responsibilities. Like everybody does it. It's not like, you know, I do it and therefore I'm at a, you know, uh, I'm at a dis disadvantaged position next to the next person. It's we all do it. Everybody does it. And we just kind of take it for granted that we do it because we see it as central to the work that's going on. Thank you very much. I mean, that's, it's, I'm getting a culture going in a place like Oxford amongst our students and so on. It, it's probably a, a relatively easy task. Getting it over an international community of researchers, that's actually extremely difficult, doesn't it? But I, I guess that, let's bring the, thank you very much. That's been really interesting. And let's bring the other two back and um, we'll, we'll talk about, about these broader issues because I guess part of uh, part of this broader culture is a matter of enshrining things like these research impact statements and and so forth in in things like uh, you know these big international conferences. And by the way, the, the the workshop that Rosie and Carolyn were involved with that was a Europe's workshop you were doing, wasn't it? So that that's a pretty big deal. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Um, a couple of questions I'd like to ask all of you, or invite you to discuss amongst yourselves. Um, first of all, are there meaningful differences between responsible research publication and responsible deployment? So, I mean, how much, some people might think, well, you know, let's take, don't worry about the researchers, let them get on with their stuff. What we should be doing is putting the checks on the deployment. Yeah, I'll jump in uh, quickly. So um, I think this relates to something I mentioned in my talk around the blurriness in AI research in particular, um, when it comes to the distinction between research and products and how we're seeing a lot of AI research uh, that sort of advances capabilities actually happening within industry um, in the process of um, building products out of those developments. So um, I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, should we be thinking about creating, changing the, the sort of research culture, or is this actually a wider um, cultural issue in the whole field of AI that includes research and uh, development and product deployment as well? And I, I think um, there might be slightly different um, considerations, but overall, they're so entangled that I do think we need some kind of common um, uh, stances here and I think this idea of the culture of responsibility uh, is an example um, like if it does if everyone starts to acknowledge that yes AI has become something that has these large effects on the world and that puts us in a position of responsibility towards it um, as much as I would like to be able to do research in a vacuum and not have to worry about these things um, we are all citizens of society and, and, and we have to play a role in that so I think um, I think there are possibly some meaningful differences between uh, research and deployment. And in particular, I'm thinking um, there's a lot of concrete work that has happened in safety engineering fields. So fields like um, aviation or um, uh, vehicles uh, have to have very concrete measures of safety. And I think that we could potentially learn from fields like that when we're talking about deploying AI systems. Um, however, I do think that, yes, we are, because of this tight loop between the research and the, and the product deployment, um, some of that thinking also needs to apply to the research itself. And this rate gets close to another question that's been asked, actually. Um, 
many other fields have established processes for research ethics. Is AI trying to reinvent the wheel? Can we learn from other fields like psychology and medicine and so on? Um, so maybe put that into your into your thinking as well. Carolyn, are you interested in responding to that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I think um, I think as as has been uh, mentioned a little bit in this seminar, um, I think I think to an extent yes, and to an extent no. So I think. Um, uh, research ethics as it concerns, you know, I'm doing a piece of research that's going to affect some human participants. How do I need to make sure that that's ethical and that's all done okay? In situations like that, this is, you know, from other fields, um, there are whole, uh, you know, institutional review boards and things like that set up to to um, to make sure that goes well. And so, yes, 100% um, that stuff um, should be and, and I believe is being pulled into the AI space. Um, of course, AI um, often does not have um, human subjects. Um, often um, it's more likely to deal with kind of personal data. Um, but then again, in that case, there's a lot of stuff that can be drawn in from the kind of uh, the data governance space. So to an extent, yes. I think with things like um, impact statements, though, uh, we are in a slightly different world where we're, we're not just asking researchers to talk about their sort of research conduct, you know, people uh, being affected during the research itself. We're also asking bigger questions about um, you know, downstream uh, impacts and, and, and broader impacts, as Rosie called them. And often research, uh, research ethics, things like institutional review boards, don't have quite that scope. Um, and so in, in spaces like that, and again, particularly because um, machine learning is so, is so sort of general purpose and can be used in so many different contexts, then that does look quite different. Um, and, then, um, and then, of course, there is stuff that you can pull, it, pull over for, from... Um, responsible research and innovation and such and such things like this um, but we need to make sure that it kind of uh, fits fits the machine learning um, setting well uh, I'm sure Helena might also have thought, yeah, thoughts on I, this can, can I just bring something else in there that um, mm. and Helena I'll come to you next but I okay. just a thought that occurs in in reaction to what Carolyn said of course um, what, and one of our our viewers has raised the issue of um, responsibility as opposed to liability. And I think that could mix in here. So one thing that comes to mind is that in areas like medicine, it's relatively easy to establish controls over what is done because the research is typically being done in government or large institutions. You know, a, a, a medical research institution can't hide away. It can't be somebody, you know, in their basement working away on a machine. But research in AI can be. So it's extremely difficult to control. You can't control it in the same way by controlling large institutions. And, and there's this issue of liability. Um, and that, that's a really tricky one. You know, with big institutions, you can say, well, if your researchers misbehave, we're going to charge huge fines or whatever. If it's someone, someone hiding under a cloak of anonymity working away in their basement, and you know, if it's possible for them to make big leaps in AI research, you know, maybe it isn't, but one can see that there, there's, there's much more of a problem than there is in the case of something like, like medicine. So Helena, on any of the, the issues we've just been raising here, yeah, so I think with the the sort of the the liability question, you know, it's absolutely right. You know, where 
AI research is going on, it's much harder to get this sense of, of what's being done if you compare it to where it's taking you know, part in sort of big, um, well-established institutions that sort of have their own regulations and so on. And I think the AI community at the moment is sort of facing the, these questions about kind of like self-governance. So is it enough to have um, sort of professional codes of, of ethics and sort of values and so on? Is it enough to sort of expect um, people to, to kind of voluntarily follow them? And, and that will be enough um, to, to secure good practice or do you need some sort of much more kind of external mechanisms in place and, and I think um, again the kind of the comparison with with medicine is, is a very good one because of course AI, AI, AI is a much younger field and it hasn't had a chance to sort of develop those professional values um, and, and so on sort of as as a field um, where compared to medicine obviously you have these kind of external mechanisms in place but you also have sort of very um, very well embedded um, values that the individuals have about sort of what is and isn't um, good yeah. practice um, in research. So I think it's kind of an ongoing question, I think, for the community, the extent to which you know, is it going to, to rally itself to sort of get those values in, in place um, or are some more external mechanisms going to be needed in that? Yes, sense? and what could those be? I, I mean, the, the, the cultural issue that was raised earlier comes in here, doesn't it? Because I mean, people standardly go into medicine because they want to cure people. <laughs> uh, they're, all, they're already pretty well motivated. They're not usually going in primarily from a financial motive, at least yep. you know, into, into medical research and so forth. Maybe yeah. plastic surgery is different. Whatever. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, in, in AI, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not the same. I mean, another question that's been raised by, by a viewer is, um, the problem is who decides what is responsible research? Not easy or self-evident. And uh, uh, another comment, uh, the stakeholder approach is interesting, but whole groups of stakeholders can be sadly misinformed. So this general question of who decides what is responsible, what is acceptable, and so forth. Do any 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 of you have any anything particular to say on that? There's the sort of the ideal view that you know you have all of the stakeholders come together and you have this sort of process of engagement and through that consensus emerges and, and sort of one of the things that we talk about um, in the sense of engagement is that it is it's kind of like a creative process in that sense and, and disagreement can be a, a place where you know uh, creativity can emerge it can be highly constructive and sort of leading to new pathways and, and so on um, so so the ideal form is who decides it's everybody because it is kind of, you know, a collective um, understanding that, that's reached through these processes. Of course, that the practice might be quite different. Um, yeah, from and you might, the find ideal. That, you might find that ideals in or, or, or general cultures in different countries are quite different. Yes, so, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so then you sort of have questions of where, where are the boundaries, um, you know, because we talk about societal values as if they're, they're a single thing, but obviously they're, they're not, you know, they can be very different, they can be competing and so on. And then you face very difficult questions about, well, whose values um, are you going to, you know, take as important and so on, or whose values wins and, and those in, kinds in, of things. Indeed. And, and just to, to finish off with this, I mean, another um, viewer has remarked that a lot of research a lot of our societal values have an anthropocentric bias they're biased in favor of human goods rather than goods for the environment and and that throws in yet more uh, issues about who decides and how do we decide so rosie and carolyn do you want to finish off with it, just a, a your view on on how we decide and who decides yeah so um 
I think that this is a question that humanity has faced since the dawn of time, right? We've all, we all have to get along with each other. We might all have different intuitions about what is ethical behavior. Um, different cultures have different perceptions on morality. And um, I, I think it is valid to ask this question with respect to AI, but I do think that um, this, is, this is definitely not something that is unique to AI as a field. And um, we somehow have managed to kind of muddle along and learn how to cooperate roughly, you know, obviously not smooth sailing, but like we've developed um, institutions and systems that have allowed us to navigate the fact that we still all have um, differences and values and intuitions and things. And I think um, my uh, main sort of the thing I'm advocating for here is not necessarily that we need to right now pick exactly whose values we're going to respect and, and what the, those values should be. And it's more that we need to start building those institutions and thinking through those processes uh, within the specific context of AI. Um, so I think we can still make progress on this without having a concrete answer about whose values, who is responsible. Um, we can still uh, sort of nudge things. We can kind of iterate, we can try things and we can nudge things in a more positive direction. And like, hopefully slowly over time, um, sort of build out our capacity for uh, wrestling with these um, more difficult questions. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah, I guess I can um, uh, add add a couple of things. Um, yeah, firstly, firstly on the on, on the on the excellent point about um, only worrying about um, human values. Yeah, certainly, certainly things like environmental impact. Um, I think it, there's been increasing recognition within um, the sort of machine learning community uh, that that um, that we do need to also think about uh, environment envir environmental impacts of systems, particularly um, systems that require huge huge uh, amounts of compute. Uh, for training which are just very very energy intensive um so yeah um lots to do but at least there's kind of a, re a recognition um uh, that this is something that, that that should be thought about um yeah in terms of the question of of, of who decides this is this is um a, a really big question that could get into some really um meaty philosophical uh, philosophical debates i'm sure um i think um i think to an extent, you know, so obviously, obviously a lot of people have very different uh, moral views, um, but I think across the board, there's a lot of stuff that we can agree on um, in terms of, of um, kind of uh, certain, certain human suffering and certain inequalities that we want to avoid. And uh, at least there, we have a very good starting point in terms of some of the stuff that we don't want to see happening. Um, and yet, sadly, sometimes do. Um, so we, then, we can start from yeah. things that we do agree on, both positive and negative. Yeah, sure. And some people would also say things like, you know, we have, um, you know, for example, the, hu the, the human rights, for example, you know, this is this has been a, a collaborative endeavor to get those written down. Um, we have starting points like that, uh, that, that um, and we can think about what that means for AI systems and kind of building, building, building that in. Um, and then I guess the final comment I'd want to make um, is that a, a lot of people um, um, really uh, are really thinking about how to get sort of impacted communities at the center of these conversations. So particularly where you're having systems that are creating real material harms for people and their lives and their decisions uh, now, um, how do we kind of center those voices who have historically not been uh, not been necessarily listened to that well in the development of these systems? Um, so I think that is that's a really important um, a, a really important place to start with. And as we think about kind of future impacts as well, thinking about how we can um, 
meaningfully kind of translate the, the, the possibilities of the technologies and where we might be headed and translate that into a meaningful way such that we can have kind of um, useful conversations with people who might be uh, impacted and to, to let people kind of have a say and, and think about what it is that, that they do and do not want from these systems, I think is really important. Thank you very much. And finally, Helena. Oh, yes. Um, so just really building on what, what Carolyn um, was saying, I think, yeah, we, we absolutely have sort of some, you know, uh, a task to work. What are the fundamental values that we have here? And I think Carolyn's point about, you know, um, addressing the kind of inequalities uh, in, in society that can be furthered um, by AI. You know, we might want to be able to, to reach out to disadvantaged communities and sort of correct out some of those, those inequalities. So that could be one of the fundamental values um, that we're looking at when we're talking about responsible research in AI. And then sometimes it's a matter of a trade-off as well as sort of understanding that maybe the ideal isn't always possible. So it's trying to see whether balances. So for instance, a balance between you know, the, the profit motive, which drives a huge amount um, of AI um, and protecting the environment. For instance, you probably can't have both of those things together. So where is the balance between them? So we kind of have a combination of what's the fundamental and where are the trade-offs? Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm struck as you gave your answers that one answer that doesn't come out is, oh, we listen to moral philosophers. <laughs> they, they will Not decide really. where the truth lies in all these things. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, we can dream. I don't think they even agree amongst themselves, do they? No, oh, no, no, I will. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, Rosie, Carolyn and Helena. That's been extremely interesting, um, giving us all an insight into a lot of difficult but really important issues raised by AI research and which are certain to become even more important in the future. Uh, funding and research structures and things like that aren't the sorts of things that typically attract a huge amount of public attention, but it, it's clear that they could potentially have a massive effect over time. I'm feeling rather conflicted myself between the typical academic prejudice in favour of openness and worries about giving bad guys ideas, but I'm in the ethically fortunate position that no ideas I produce are likely to give any use to bad guys. <laughs> the, uh, the session has been recorded. It will be added to the rich collection of AI ethics resources that we're building up at Oxford. As I said at the beginning, you can find links to past and forthcoming events and a growing set of recordings and podcasts categorised by topic if you go to the Oxford Philosophy Faculty homepage and click on the Ethics in AI link. Before saying goodbye, I'd like to thank Wes Williams, Vicky McGuinness and the whole team at Torch for helping with the organisational and technical arrangements for this seminar. They've made everything much easier for the four of us and, uh, and we hugely appreciate that. Uh, thank you again to our three speakers. Thank you for watching, uh, especially those who've, who've added comments or questions. Do look out for our future events from the link I mentioned. Our next seminar will be on artificial intelligence and mental integrity and takes place in three weeks time, 5pm on March the 23rd. Until then, thank you again and goodbye. <laughs>